Welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly. The following podcast is going to be part three from the Rock Harbor Fullerton's Questions class. And uh, this part is going to cover the reliability of the New Testament and answering the question, is the New Testament true? I hope you enjoy. Alrighty. So miracles are possible. If God exists and if truth exists, miracles become possible. So now, excuse me, the last thing is, is the New Testament true? Can we trust what we have written down? Um, I'm not going to go into this today, um, but the two questions that we have to ask if we have to understand is the New Testament true is, do we have accurate copies of the original documents? And then do the original documents tell the truth? And today we're not going to go into all the manuscript evidence um, of accurate copies, but I do want to show you one thing. This is the reliability of our New Testament documents. There's two things that you have to look at. You have to look at how long after the events were the documents written, and then how many documents do we have to compare and contrast to figure out what is the true story. When it comes to the New Testament, the time gap in years from the events to when the first documents were written is about 25 years. It's a short period of time. And we now have over 5,000, it's 5,800 now documents, manuscripts of these original documents that we have written. When you compare it to other events in the ancient, uh, you can't see these letters here or these words, but this is Homer's Iliad and his Odyssey. It was written about 500 years after the events took place is when it was finally written down. And now we have actually just over, I think, 1,000 copies of it. Uh, when we talk about Caesar, down here, Caesar and what he did, what we know about Caesar's life comes from 10 manuscripts written at about 1,000 years after his life. And so what you have to kind of evaluate is, OK, what do we have written down? How big is the gap in time? Because obviously, the, the larger the gap, 1,400 years, stories can change. Can you imagine if we're writing history for the first time of events that happened back in about 1016? Right? There's a lot that can get changed. And so it's just important to realize, yet we trust these. This is normal. In the ancient history, it's normal to have between a 500 to 1,000 year gap from when the event happened to when it was written down. That's normal. And we believe these things about Caesar that these manuscripts tell us. Yet, so how much more should we believe the New Testament when there's only a 25-year period and we have over 5,800 of these documents? And so we have a very reliable, trustworthy set of documents telling us what took place. The one I want to focus on today is do the original New Testament documents tell us what is true? And what we have to look at or what helps us is the six different E's. We have to look at... Um, early testimony. Do what we have, does it come early? Do we have eyewitness testimony? This is huge. Whenever I ask students, um, how do you know if you should believe something that took place in the past? Their answer always is, did someone see it? Was there an eyewitness that then wrote it down, wrote down what happened? If we have eyewitnesses that saw it and wrote about it, then we can believe it. And so um, is the New Testament a written eyewitness document? Or uh, was it written hundreds of years later and we can't trust? Um, does it contain embarrassing testimony? We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on this one. Um, and then ex excruciating testimony, um, expected testimony, 
and extra biblical testimony. And so these are six different things that we can look at um, to understand, do, is the New Testament reliable? It's, is what's written down, is it true? And so the first one, early testimony. Um, the thing that we have to understand for the most part is the New Testament, almost all or most of the New Testament, was written before 70 A.D. And what most people, and this is a good way to, to date it, is that Paul died in around 65 A.D., uh, James died before Paul, and both James and Paul were alive at the end of b the book of Acts. And so most people then will assume uh, or believe that Acts was written before James and Paul were killed, and we know those dates. Um, and so Acts was written in about 60 A.D. Now, Acts is the second part to the book of Luke. So Luke comes before. First uh, Corinthians was written in about 55 AD. So Paul is writing 1 Corinthians about 55 AD. But the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the creed we're talking about uh, the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, even liberal atheist scholars will say that that's pre-40 AD. Some will date it about 35 AD. And so the creed from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, people will say, yeah, that, that comes from within two, three, four, five years of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we have very, very early testimony of these things happening. And so Luke is before 60, Mark comes before that, and some, if they argue for that Mark was written before, Ma uh, sorry, that some that argue Matthew was written before Mark, then they'll place Matthew sometime in the early 40s as well, it's possible. Those that argue Ma Mark was the first, then Matthew kind of ends up here somewhere in the 50s or so, 60s. And so what we know is that the majority or most of the New Testament, all of it, was written while the eyewitnesses were still alive before 70 AD. So the next one, do we have eyewitness testimony? Do we really have true um, eyewitness testimony? And what we see, and we won't read this, with the, or all of it, but at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, here's how he starts off. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of, and he keeps going and listing names. And the question to ask is, does it sound like they're making up this story? And what we know is that an exact date is given, AD 29, in the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Um, we have all the eight people listed here are known from history. These are real people that lived, and we know about them. Um, and we know that all these people were alive at this time. It's not a once-in-upon-a-time story. Let me tell you about a galaxy far, far, far away. This is real-life people that lived at a real-life time, given an exact date. We know about this. And so this, from the beginning, is, wow, that looks eyewitness. Right? If I'm going to write a history about something that happened 2,000 years ago, I'm not going to be able to name all these people and all these dates and get everything right. And we won't talk about it today, um, but if we have other questions, if you've heard about the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, um, some of those just do a bad job of getting accurate information from the first century. It, it, it shows in their writing that they didn't know what happened in the first century as far as they mention major cities like Jerusalem, but they leave out a lot, a lot of the smaller cities. They leave off some of the leaders and rulers, and it just shows that they really didn't know really what was happening. They kind of give a general view of, hey, it's the first century, but not specifics like you would see if someone was writing it that really lived during that time. Um, the Book of Acts. I don't know if you guys have heard this. The Book of Acts 
has 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. And here they say, um, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. Acts is one of the most historically reliable books that we have, or at least historically confirmed. And what we have to understand, too, is that the Gospels, as well, are known to be historically reliable, trustworthy documents. They've been tested by historians, and what we're going to see and what we've looked at is, wow, these are accurate. We can trust them. And they have lots of details. And so for the book of Acts, 84 historically verified details. Luke includes several others in his gospel, as well as John has 59 historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details. And the New Testament documents cite more than 30 people confirmed by secular sources and archaeology to have existed during that time. And so it's amazing that, again, it's not this once upon a time, I'm going to make up some characters in some cities. We see that in other religions. If you read uh, the Book of Mormon, it's talking about Jesus coming over to the Americas with these Indian tribes, and they name tribes and they name cities that we've never found any archaeological confirmation of them ever existing. And so you can see, like, okay, the, the people and the places named here, they don't match up with what we know. Whereas when you look at the New Testament, lots of people in lots of places, over 30 people, would say, yeah, this matches up. These people really existed. They were rulers at that time. And this lines up with what is being said. And so um, <clears throat> here are what archaeologists say. The extraordinary, in extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testament. Corroborating key points of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the Davidic monarchy, and the life and times of Jesus. And one thing um, that I've read and heard is that we have not had an archaeological discovery disprove something in Scripture. Every piece of archaeological evidence that we find is actually confirming names, dates, and places that we find. In fact, just a few years ago, they, they uncovered the Pool of Bethsaida uh, or the, and the Pool of Siloam. And so these are just a couple years ago. It's like, okay, we're not quite sure if this really existed. You know, it's written here. We don't have any reason to doubt it. And then we find it. Um, King David was not 100% sure. We had no archaeological evidence of him existing. Um, and just a few years back, too, as well, in the early 2000s, they found a stone written in. This is, the, you know, for King David or David the king. And so, um, again, we keep finding these archaeological stuff that is confirming what we have in our New Testament. Now we see, okay, the, there is early testimony. There's eyewitness testimony. What about embarrassing testimony? What do you think embarrassing testimony is? Let me ask you this. Have you ever lied to make yourself look better? Have you lied to make yourself look worse? Right? We normally don't lie to make ourselves look worse. What about our people that we don't like? Have we lied to make them look worse? Our enemies? Or have we lied to make our enemies look better? Generally not, right? So if we're going to tell a lie, it's generally speaking going to be a lie to make me look better and my enemy to look at the person I don't like to make them look worse. And so if we can find something in the Gospels that's embarrassing, then it's like, okay, are they really going to lie about that? And are there any embarrassing things in the New Testament? Well, there's a lot of them. First of all, the, 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 the apostles, the disciples are dim-witted. 
what we see is that they fail to understand what Jesus is saying. How many times has Jesus said something and they're like, wait, so what are you saying? Right? If they're writing this, are they really going to be like, yeah, we didn't understand for the eighth time. You know, Jesus predicted his death three times and we still didn't get it. No, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, Jesus preached and I understood it and everything was awesome. Right? I didn't have to make him re repeat it more than once. We also see that they're, not, they're uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus twice. Hey, guys, please stay awake. Oh, we fell asleep again. We screwed up. We see that they, they, they made no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. Who buries Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. Right? Even his disciples, his followers, didn't take him and bury him. Now, it could have been very useful for them if they could have buried him. Uh, then they could have said, oh, he's risen from the dead, and no one would have known where he was buried. But it's fascinating that the Jewish leader, one of the Jewish leaders, Joseph of Arimathea, is the one that buries Jesus. So the authorities knew where Jesus was buried. So that when he rises three days later, they knew where the tomb was. If Jesus was still in the tomb, they could have walked down to the tomb and said, yeah, here's his body. We buried him. Here it is. There, you know. If the disciples would have taken him at the beginning, then they could have said, yeah, we don't know where they put him. So it's interesting that it's the Jews that bury Jesus and then when he goes missing, he rises from the dead. They're like, oh, what do we do? Because we know the tomb is empty. Because we know that where we buried him, it was us. But the disciples run and hide for their lives rather than burying their leader after he's killed. They are rebuked. Peter is called Satan. Now, Mark writes this, and most people believe that Mark is writing Peter's story. So can you imagine that Peter is telling Mark his story, and Mark is like, hey, Peter, this is a good point. What if I add here that uh, Jesus called you Satan? <laughs> if he's making this up, how would Peter respond to that? Uh, no, make him call John Satan. And make, you know, and make him, no, I don't want, no. Don't say that about me. No, the only reason that they would write this is what? If it's true, they're not going to make this stuff up. Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about theological issues. Hey, you really messed this one up. Right? And so we see this. Um, they're cowards. Peter denies Christ three times. Um, after, the after Jesus killed, the disciples run away. And then it's the women who are the brave ones. Now I want you to think about this too. If the guys are writing this down, how would they, if they're, and if they're making it up, how would they write this? Jesus was killed, and three days later, we went down to the tomb, and we fought the guards off, and we were so strong, we were able to roll back the stone, and it was empty, and then we saw Jesus, and so we ran back to tell the women of the things that we'd done with our strength and comfort them, because the women were in tears, right? We're the tough guys. No, but what do they say? Yeah, we ran for our lives. We locked ourselves in the room. We were cowering in fear, and guess who were the brave ones? The women. And by the way, in that culture, women's testimony had no weight. So is this something that they're just going to make up? They're doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would rise from the dead, they doubted it. And then the disciples were doubtful even when they heard of his resurrection, and some were doubtful after they even seen him rise from the dead. Again, do you make that stuff up? Like, man, he told me three times, and then he rose from the dead, and then I saw him alive, and I still couldn't believe it. No. I believed him. I did exactly what he wanted me to do the first time. Right? That's what you're going to say. Now, what's fascinating is we also have embarrassing testimonies about Jesus. What is the, some of the stuff that the New Testament says about Jesus? Well, he's considered out of his own mind by his family. 
and they come to take him and take him home. Uh, we see that he's deserted by his followers. He's not believed by his own brothers. His own brother, James, didn't think that he was God. By the way, just if you have a brother, which I have two brothers, can you imagine if your brother started saying, I'm God? Would you believe him? No. I mean, you can't hold it against James for being, James for being skeptical that his brother is God. What's fascinating, though, is what, did James end, what ended up happening to James? He turned his life over. He became a Christian and was one of the early church leaders and was even killed for his faith in AD 62. What do you think would cause such, what do you think it would take for your brother to convince you that he's God? Maybe dying, rising from the dead and appearing to you, right? And that's what James says is it, it, we see in 1 Corinthians 15 in the, in the creed that Jesus appeared to James. And so, hey, you saw your brother die. Three days later, he rises from the dead while wow, you're convinced. Um, but you can't hold it against James for not believing in him in the beginning. Jesus thought to be a deceiver. He turns off Jewish believers to the point that they want to stone him. This is fascinating. Right before, he says, I am, you know, as Moses said, I am, claiming to be God. And then they try and stone him. I was talking with some Jehovah's Witnesses. And they said, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I brought up that verse where Jesus uses the reference from back in Exodus where he says, I am. And, um, or is that Genesis? Genesis, I don't remember. Now I'm facing out where that story is. But, and I said, How's, he, he, he claims to be God right here. And they said, no, he that's not a claim to be God. I said, if he didn't claim to be God, then why did they threaten, why did they try and kill him? The only reason that they're going to try and stone him is if he made a claim to be God and it was blasphemous and deserved death. And um, so that is important that, you know, he's turned off by the Jewish believers. He's called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute and is crucified despite the fact that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, as said in Deuteronomy. And so, again, if you're trying to make up a story to convince Jews that this is the Messiah... Is that what you're going to make up? Especially, are you going to make up that he was hung on a cross when Deuteronomy says those that are hung on crosses, that those that are hung on a tree is under the curse of God? It's not going to be very convincing to a Jewish audience if they're just going to make this up. There's very good reason to believe that this is true. Um, we see also next excruciating testimony. What were the lives of the disciples like before and after the resurrection of Jesus? Before the resurrection, they, uh, you know, was centered on animal sacrifice. Afterwards, it was this sacrifice that Christ made for us. Before the resurrection, it was the binding law of Moses. Afterwards, they said, no, Christ's life fulfilled the law. Before, it was a strict monotheism. Afterwards, it was Trinitarian God. Before, it was the Sabbath was the main focus. And afterwards, it was a Sunday worship. Before, it was the conquering Messiah, and afterwise, it was the sacrificial Messiah. And before, it was based on circumcision, and afterwards, it was baptism and communion. We see that before and after the resurrection of Jesus, their lives are completely changed. Their practices are changed. And I want to ask you, does this happen easily? There's studies that show that um, Mormons, that it takes the average Mormon four to six years to, become, to, turn, to turn to Christianity after they start questioning Mormonism. Um, there's stories, uh, 
Nabil Qureshi is a speaker, a Christian apologist now. He was a Muslim his whole life. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, uh, where he kind of explains his journey of coming to Christianity. It took him six years. In fact, if I'm remembering the story correctly, after he finally admitted that Islam was false and Christianity was true, it still took him another two years to finally get the courage to finally commit. There's another speaker, Abdu Murray, who was a Muslim. It took him nine years to become a Christian. Why does it normally, why does it take a lot of people such a long time? Sometimes they have to change everything that they've been taught their entire lives. Sometimes they have to leave family. And I want to kind of give that as a word of encouragement if you're talking with like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anything like that. We can't expect, or even just non-Christians, we can't expect them to convert immediately. I was talking with a father a few months ago at an event, and he said, you know, it was easy for my daughter to accept Christ because nothing really changed in her life. She was growing up in a Christian home, and we always went to church, and she went to youth group. So when she accepted Jesus, it was like, you know, life is pretty much the same. I'm doing the same practices. I'm not losing my family. Nothing is changing in that sense. It's an easier thing to do. But sometimes we talk to people who, in order to accept Christ, they have to change a lot. They have to leave friends. They have to leave family. They have to leave practices or religions that they've been told are true their entire lives. And we can't expect it to happen quickly. There's a guy I know that does a lot of work with Mormons. And he was, a lady came and talked to him. And she said, hey, I had some Mormons come to my house. I talked with them one week. They asked, do you want to come back next week? And they, she said, yeah, come back next week. So they came back the week after. And at the end of the second week, the Mormon said, hey, do you want us to come back again the following week? And she said, you know... I'm not going to change my mind. You're not going to change my mind. This is a waste of, you're not going to change your mind. This is a waste of time. And it was this kind of this expectation of, after two weeks, I'm going to convince you to become a Christian. And we can't expect that. You know, Mormons, it takes four to six years on average. Um, but with the disciples, what do we see? We see this drastic change immediately. What would be so huge that they would make this huge change in their lives so quickly. Something like the resurrection. Their leader dying and rising from the dead to prove that he is God. I mean, did they have anything to gain by starting a new religion? Think of Paul. What did Paul have to gain in joining Christianity? He was a top-level religious leader within Judaism. He accepts Christ, converts to Christianity, and then is persecuted for his faith. What did he have to gain? Did they get rich? No. Right? The most of them were, they were willing to die for this. And so they didn't have anything to gain from starting a new religion. They had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen. I think their life was probably pretty good in Judaism. Right? They had every reason to give. And why would they die for something they knew to be a lie? There's no one that just dies for something they know is a lie. Now, what normally will come up is people will say, well, you know, what about, you know, the terrorists? You know, what about the people who flew planes into the buildings at 9-11? They died for something that uh, you say is a lie. Was there a difference? There's one big difference here. People will die for something they believe to be true, for the lie that they believe to be true. But people don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. Right? 
And so what we see today is a lot of the martyrs today, they believe that what they're dying for is true. They're not, they weren't there at the beginning to know. The difference with the disciples, they were there at the beginning. They knew that either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. And so if he didn't rise from the dead, that they, then they knew it was a lie. And people don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. Very quickly, we're kind of wrapping up these last couple points. Um, expected testimony. What would we expect in the New Testament given what we know? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that the whole human race will be passed down through the woman, Genesis 3. That the, line, that the, that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Uh, would be born in Bethlehem, that would be both God and man, visit the temple, die in 33 AD, is a sacrifice, and is a sacrifice. So given what we know from the Old Testament, we would expect what we see in the New Testament. These are the things that, with fulfilled prophecy that we see in the life of Jesus. And then extra-biblical testimony, what do we have outside the Bible? We have 10 ancient non-Christian sources. Um including Josephus, Tacitus, uh, Thallius, and other government officials, Pliny the Younger, and all these other people, sources including the Jewish Talmud and Greek writers, that when you compile their references, we get a story congruent with the New Testament. And I thought this was fascinating the first time I heard it, that if you completely throw out every single document that we have of the New Testament, and if we lost every single Bible, Every single Christian source, if it was just disappeared off the face of the planet, only based on non-Christian historians writing, we could see that Jesus lived during a time of Tiberius Caesar, that he lived a virtuous life, that he was a wonder worker, he had a brother named James, he was acclaimed to be the Messiah, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he, it, there was an eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died, he was crucified on the eve of the Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. They were willing to die for their beliefs. And Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. And his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. That's information that we can get from non-Christian sources. So even if we lost the Bible and every single Christian writing we have, there's what we have outside of the Bible confirming that what is in the Bible is true. People say, well, the Christian writers, they were biased. We can't trust them. Okay, well, here's the non-biased enemies. Or maybe not enemies, but the non-biased non-Christians. Um, and here's what they said. And it confirms or corroborates everything that we know what is in the New Testament. This is what the New Testament says. And so a summary on the evidence, if the uh, New Testament is true, we have all of these different testimonies that we looked at. And what we can come to the conclusion of is that the New Testament is historically reliable. It is a fact. It's not fiction. If Jesus said it, then Jesus really said it. And if Jesus did it, then he really did it. We have an accurate, reliable, trustworthy documents of the life of Jesus. And so that kind of wraps up the reliability of the New Testament. It is, we have really good reasons to believe that what the New Testament says is true. Um, what's written in it is true. They're not just going to lie about these things. They're not going to die for lies. And extra-biblical, outside-the-Bible, non-Christian sources confirm what's inside of it. And again, what we kind of, I mentioned briefly last week, that if the New Testament is true, who lived in the New Testament? Jesus. What did Jesus say about the Old Testament? that it was the word of God. 
And so we have Jesus approving of what the Old Testament says as the word of God. And then we have Jesus speaking to the disciples saying, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit so that you will remember all the things that were said and done that you will write accurately. And so approving again of the New Testament, the soon to be written New Testament. And so if truth exists, which we said, yes, it does. And God does exist, that there is this monotheistic, all-powerful God, that he has come down to this earth, he has worked miracles, creating the earth and done miracles, and then sent his son or himself to come down, speaking and revealing himself who he is, confirming that message through miracles, and we have an accurate story of, of his life in the New Testament. Is there a good reason to believe that Christianity is reliable? Absolutely. And so then what we see is that when Jesus talks about, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says, this is the truth. There is no other, right? If any other angel or anyone comes giving another testimony of what happened, you know, don't believe it if it doesn't line up. And so what we see is that Christianity is true. And based on what we started at the very beginning with the law of non-contradiction, two things can't both be true in the same way in the same sense. If religion comes, it says, there's multiple gods, no, there's only one God. All other religions with multiple gods cannot both be true. And if someone else is revealing a different truth, it can't be true in the same way, in the same sense. And so when Christianity is true and it claims to be exclusive, then no other religion can be true as well. You've been listening to Coffee House Questions with Ryan Polly. Thank you for joining me. Um, I just want to let you know that the final part will be coming up from the second week of the questions class at Rock Harbor Fullerton. It'll be the open Q&A section. And there's just one more week left in the questions class. That'll be posted uh, next week after we do it on Sunday. If you live in the area, feel free to come by Rock Harbor Fullerton. It meets at the Cal State Fullerton campus. Questions class is at 1.30 p.m. in the Titan Student Union Building. Uh, have an awesome rest of your week and uh, God bless. See you again.